I want to welcome everyone who is watching online or live here in person at our North Richland Hills campus. I'm so glad that you're with us for this last week of Keep This on Repeat, a study in the Psalms, which is the songbook of the Bible. Now, when we started this series, we issued a Psalm a Day reading challenge. And, uh, and now at the end of the series, I've, I've seen that a lot of you took up that challenge. And you read every single day and you commented and logged those chapters at one millionchapters.com. Thank you for doing that. Others of you interacted with our Facebook page where there were all kinds of posts regarding the Psalms and you shared those on your profiles. Thanks for doing that, for, for blessing your friends on social media by sharing the scripture with, uh, with your friends. And um, this last week, I know this is the last, ser- the last message of the series, but know that the reading will, will continue through this week. And I'd love for everybody to join in. Even if you've been out of town, maybe you've been on vacation and now you're back, I hope that you will join in and read because these last few readings all are paired with a New Testament passage. And so you're going to see the psalm in its original context, but each day you're going to get a glimpse of how Jesus and how the early church referenced and used the psalms in their teachings and in their life. And I think you'll be blessed by that. I can't move on into the lesson without first thanking all of you. Uh, At all of our campuses, I got different notes and encouragements from people who shared with me how the Psalms were impacting their life. Thank you for sharing that. And I need to give a personal thank you to Rick Atchley, our Minister of the Word, for his mentorship and coaching. Rick, if you're watching this later... Thank you. We as a whole church are grateful and blessed to have somebody like you who preaches here and leads here. Can I get an amen from everybody who's here live? Rick's Rick's probably watching this later like, okay, move on, move on. All right, we will. You know, the Psalms that we've looked at during this series have really been pretty, pretty clean cut. They've been simple. I mean, I've tried to choose Psalms that, that were clear examples of a song of prayer or a song of worship, or a song of hope. And they've been kind of like, well, kind of like pop songs. You know, they're about three and a half minutes or less, and they've got a simple message, and they're just kind of in and out, short and sweet. But when you look at the whole collection of the psalms, a bunch of them aren't like that at all. In fact, they're not pop songs. They're 18-minute classical music suites. The kind that start with a march that builds and builds and all of a sudden it fades out and a small melody comes in and then that crescendos as a new theme is introduced and reinterpreted and there's dramatic twists and turns inside this sweeping piece of music. And today's psalm is much like that and we'll get there in just a second. If you're here for the first time or maybe you're watching online for the very first time, I'm so glad that you're with us. And I couldn't have picked a better weekend for you to be here. Even though you might feel like I'm coming in at the end of a series, this is a perfect day. Because you're going to get a glimpse, you're going to get a look into the core of what we at the Hills and what Christians in general believe about a man named Jesus. As many know, Jesus was a teacher. He was a traveling preacher, rabbi, and he he did his ministry in the nation of Israel, traveling to different regions. But it was in Jerusalem that the most famous events of his life took place. He was having dinner with his disciples, observing a Passover meal, part of a Jewish religious festival. And then he went to a garden with them where he prayed late into the night as his disciples and followers struggled to stay awake. And then all of a sudden, a group of religious leaders came. 
And they brought soldiers and swords and torches and one particular man in tow. There's a man named Judas. And in a matter of minutes, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own followers. The rest of his disciples abandoned him. And then he was drugged off by this group of religious leaders and soldiers to a midnight mock trial. They had lying witnesses and trumped up charges against him. But everything changed when Jesus himself admitted to the high priest, I am the Messiah. That's when they grabbed him and they took him straight to the Roman authorities. The Romans were the only ones who could, who could authorize any kind of corporal punishment and, and the religious leaders were out for blood. And so early, early in the morning, the unthinkable happened. In front of a riotous crowd, an innocent man was condemned to die. Jesus, though he'd done nothing wrong, was sentenced to face what is perhaps one of the cruelest inventions, Roman crucifixion. As the Gospels recorded it, it began with a flogging. And this was undertaken by professional torturers people whose job it was to rip the skin out of criminals. Now, a lot of writers and scholars will note, a lot of criminals died just during this initial flogging. But our Jesus, as one pastor said, Jesus was a godly man and a manly God. And he didn't die then. He outlived the flogging, but then he was made to carry a crossbeam through a mocking crowd out of the city of Jerusalem to the place of the skull, Golgotha, where alongside two criminals, he was raised up, crucified at nine o'clock in the morning. It's the beginning of a day's work for a Roman soldier. But Jesus had other work ahead of him. Six hours of agony on the cross pass. And then this is what the Gospel of Mark says happened. And at three in the afternoon... Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this looks like the moment when Jesus broke, like he has given up. Up to this point, facing the torture and the pain, Jesus has seemed physically and as best we can tell, spiritually strong. He stood against it. But this looks like he's cracked. Now for us, we we might read this and think, wait, these these words sound wrong coming out of Jesus' mouth. I mean, he's supposed to be perfect. How could he say this? How could he do this? How How could he speak these words against God and not be sinning? So really, what what we believe about Jesus what we believe about God, our whole faith hangs on what we do with this moment on the cross. And that brings us to today's psalm, Psalm 22. If you've got your Bibles, open up to the 22nd psalm. And what we're going to do today is we're going to compare the beginning of this psalm with this tortured cry of Jesus from the cross. Psalm 22 Begins like this in verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? It turns out that Jesus wasn't sinning when he said these words from the cross. He was quoting scripture. Now, I don't believe that he was quoting scripture in the pat sort of like that's what you're supposed to do in hard times kind of way. I think he was quoting this particular psalm, which he must have known well from public worship. But I think I think these words were the best, most honest representation of what he was experiencing in that moment between him and God the Father. For folks who are new to Christianity, you may wonder, what what is it about the cross? I mean, all of us can understand the physical agony, the, 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 the death of Jesus on the cross. We, we understand that from a physical sense that it was horrible and awful. But, but what else is it for Christians? And here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus, who had up to then lived a, very, a perfect life, not just a very good life, a perfect life with no sin, that he had fulfilled every law and commandment, he had lived exactly as God wanted him to live, and... And in this moment on the cross, he took on the sins of the world. All of the laws and commandments that you and I have broken, that humanity has never been able to live up to. And one New Testament writer takes it a step farther and says, Jesus became sin. That he didn't just take on the sins of the world, but that he took them in. That, that they enveloped him, that... that, that, that that they embodied him for a moment. And he represented the sins of the world and all sinners for all time. And in that moment, well, Jesus had previously felt between him and the Father only, only fatherly affection and love and unity and, and, and acceptance and support. But then in this moment, when Jesus takes in and takes on the sins of the world, all of that love and acceptance is replaced by what one writer calls the wrath of God burning in the heart of Jesus. This is difficult for us to even describe or talk about, but, but I think that the, the agony may, may be a way we can understand it, even a glimpse of it, is if any of us have lost love, which we all have. Lost love in relationships is a, it's a shadow, it's a figment of what Jesus experienced in full on the cross. If you have a friend and you've been friends for many years and then you, you have some kind of a falling out and that friend says, I don't ever want to talk to you again. Well, that wounds, it hurts. It hurts more if you're a child and you've heard from a parent, I don't want to be part of your life. It wounds, it scars. It hurts more. When a spouse says to another spouse, I don't love you anymore. You see, lost love destroys something in us. It breaks us. It, it, it tears us into pieces. And the wound is, is directly related to the length of time and the depth of that love. I read about a husband who was... He was married to his wife for 55 years. And then when they were in their 70s, this wife passed away. Now, for this husband, his grief took the form of visiting her grave every single day. And he didn't do this just for a few weeks or months, but for years. In fact, some 20 years, he would go to her graveside, set up a chair, and he would spend hours there. 
He was eventually interviewed about this and, and sitting by his wife's grave, he was asked, why do, you, why do you keep coming? Why do you keep doing this after all these years? And here's, here's what the man said. She is part of me. So here, I am whole. Jesus described his relationship with God the Father in similar terms, saying, we are one. You see, Jesus experienced a connection and intimacy, a unity with the Father that he hadn't enjoyed and been part of for a few decades. It had been since before the foundations of the world were laid. For all time, for all eternity, he and the Father had been one, united along with the Spirit. And, and when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is in direct relationship to that, that connection being severed for a moment. And Jesus feeling the despair, the agony of not only being forsaken by the people he came to save, not only being deserted by the friends and followers who left him in his greatest hour of need, but now being deserted and separated from God himself. And I think that's why Psalm 22 is what he quoted, what he said. It was Diedrich Bonhoeffer who said, this psalm only reached its full meaning when Jesus spoke these words from the cross. Because when you look at the rest of the psalm, it's full of prophetic images that are strikingly similar to the gospel's accounts of Jesus' death. I want to show you a couple of passages. Seven verses into Psalm 22 The psalmist writes, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now, all of the Gospels record that Jesus was mocked. He was mocked by the crowds. He was mocked by the Roman soldiers. He was even mocked by the thieves on either side of him. But but the religious leaders, they were there, too. And what they said is eerily similar to Psalm 22. Matthew records it this way, that the religious leaders, they shouted, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. But the similarities don't end there. Several verses down in verse 16 of Psalm 22, the psalmist writes, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now Mark in his gospel says, And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Stripped of his clothing, Jesus' bones are all on display as those four simple words, and they're so easy to say, and they crucified him. But, but what that means is that Jesus was laid out over that wood, already bloodied from the flogging, and then four to six inch metal spikes were driven into his wrists and his ankles. And he was raised up, made to hang on his wounds. And when you were crucified, you didn't die from bleeding out. No, it was designed in such a way to prolong the suffering. 
And it's slowly under the exhaustion and the pain, your, your chest would cave in and you wouldn't be able to breathe anymore. And most criminals who are crucified, they would suffocate. It's an agonizing way to go. And Jesus, he doesn't go quickly. He's on the cross for six hours. But then even, even then, Psalm 22 has a, a connection with how Jesus finally died on the cross. In verse 15 it says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And on the cross, as John records it, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And Jesus was laid in the dust of death. And I don't think it's any accident that he quoted this psalm. How is it that we could sum up what was won for us on the cross? What was accomplished on the cross? Since Jesus took on the sins of the world, that means what he offered to us was his righteousness. And here's how I'd sum it up. Christ's unspeakable suffering won our immeasurable blessing. Christ's unspeakable suffering won our immeasurable blessing. You see, on the cross, Jesus' prayer went unanswered so that ours could be heard. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we could be claimed. On the cross, Jesus was cast out so that you and I could be welcomed in. On the cross, Jesus' perfect obedience was met with punishment so that our disobedience could be met with reward. On the cross, Jesus faced the hopelessness of undeserved separation from God so you and I could hope in a reunion with God, we will never deserve. And through His unspeakable suffering, He won our immeasurable blessing. And they took Him down from the cross and they laid Him in the dust of death, put Him in a tomb. And praise God that the Gospel story doesn't end there. You see, Jesus, three days later, was raised up the stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. Jesus had been raised from the grave. And Psalm 22 doesn't end with sorrowful images that align with the crucifixion. Just like that classical music suite, it, it, it stops all of a sudden and makes this abrupt turn. And it's a call to worship. In verse 22 of the psalm, it says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Now listen close. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. 
You see, even even from the cross, God, God heard, God knew that he was not going to make Jesus's death meaningless by allowing him to remain in the grave. But he had other plans. And in response to a God who would raise a savior and prove a victory over sin and death, all we can do as a right response is to worship, is to praise this awesome God. And the disciples, they had a lot to they had a lot to celebrate, a lot to worship about. Because they, 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 they saw Jesus again. And it was Him. They were sure. They saw the scars. They knew. They spent 40 days with Him. And then, after 40 days, Jesus says to them, as He's about to ascend to heaven, He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given under Me. Therefore, go. Make disciples. Go reach the nations. Go be My witnesses. Not just in Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And Psalm 22, it, it heads the same direction. A few verses later, after this call to worship, it says in verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And He rules over the nations. I can't help but, but see a parallel between Jesus saying, I have all authority and God's dominion over the nations. And so the disciples, they went. They went and they crossed social boundaries they hadn't crossed before. They crossed racial boundaries they hadn't crossed before. They crossed national boundaries as they had never done before. And the gospel message began to spread as they told people again and again, there was this perfect Perfect God who came in the flesh and he died on a cross and then God raised this Jesus up from the dead and they saw people turn and claim Christ as Lord. And what I love is that you and I get to share in that same mission. I love being part of a church that prioritizes sending and equipping people to share this message that we send out people regionally, nationally, internationally, and we train up and send out teams of missionaries, and we, and we even train pastors in other countries and in other continents that we won't earthly see, the, see all the benefits or receive the benefits of what they're doing. But instead, we know that the gospel message continues to spread, and people turn to the Lord, even, even when their family won't accept them after they've been baptized. Even when their society will treat them differently. Even when, on an, in earthly terms, it looks like a total disadvantage to follow Jesus in their context. People from all corners of the earth are hearing the gospel and responding and saying, Jesus is Lord. And this psalm, it, it doesn't just look to the ends of the earth, but even the way Jesus prayed for those who would eventually believe. The gospel message rings out across time into eternity. And Psalm 22 ends this way. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. I can't help but hear a parallel between the way this psalm ends and what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. The work is done. Sin has been paid for. It's finished. 
you know, during this whole series, we've we've looked into the Psalms and and we've looked at spiritual rhythms. And one of the one of the principles we've talked about every single week is that results require repetition. You see, we, we've seen these psalmists who keep singing about how they're going to keep singing. They keep praying about how they're going to keep praying. And, and in that, we've seen, okay, well, we've even looked at verses like Psalm 105, verse 4. It says, seek his presence continually. But I, I need to make an amendment because, because some of us, I, I don't want anyone to walk away from today or this series and think, okay, if I just, if I just pray enough, if I just pray enough times, if I just worship often enough, if I just sing enough songs, if I just hope enough, if I just serve enough, if I just study enough, if I just read enough, if I just do enough, then I will, I will enter and earn God's presence. Results do require repetition, but there was one result, the greatest result that required no repetition. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once. For sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus doesn't doesn't need to do the cross again. It happened one time and his perfect work, his death was sufficient. That result requires no repetition. And only through Jesus could we ever seek and arrive in the presence of God. Jesus even said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. But it was also Jesus who, when he talked about people who wanted to follow him, what he said was, take up your cross daily. And in that sense for us, results do require repetition. See, we need the gospel every single day. And when I take up my cross daily, I think one of the things that that reminds me of is that as I head out into my day, to my job, as I, as I parent, as I'm, as I'm a spouse, as I'm a friend, as I'm a coworker, as what, whatever I do, whatever my, my craft or skill, if I'm going to school, if I'm going to work, whatever it is, even if I'm going to church, I do not rest on my works. I don't rest on my righteousness, on my ability, on my strength. I rest on what Christ has already done. And that's sufficient for me. That's the foundation of my life. But more than that, I think to tell ourselves the gospel every day reminds us that everyone we meet is someone Jesus died for. Jesus didn't just die for my sins. He died for the sins of everyone, to pay for all sins. And so that means that the people who get on your nerves, maybe it's that person at work that like it's it's 901 and you're already sick of them. Maybe it's a family member that you've, you've been butting heads with. Maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's somebody that you've just felt at odds with. I don't know who it is that just, that just, just eats up all your patience. But, but Jesus died for them just as much as for you and me. And he loves all of us and God welcomes all of us. And so we've got to offer the same grace and love because it's been lavished on us. But more than that, the gospel shows us and tells me Sin is an awful thing. And the cross reminds me of what it brings. It brings death. And what Jesus experienced in unspeakable suffering on the cross, some will experience for eternity. Separation from God. They will choose to be separated from God. And God will give them what they want. And I don't want that for them. 
How could we not, in light of the gospel, leverage every aspect of our lives to find ways to share this truth? It may require us to be bold. It may require us to step outside of our comfort zone. But in light of the cross, how could we not? How could we not want to see more people turn back? And that requires not just a minister, not just a a team or a staff at a church. It requires the whole body of Christ to share this word with our life and with our words. Through this whole series, we've talked about prayer, about worship, about hope in the Psalms. But I, I hope most of all you take away, Jesus is the answer to all our prayers. He is the object of every right act of worship. He is the source of any lasting hope. Because through his unspeakable suffering, he won our immeasurable blessing. And the whole world needs to know. We pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We see in you a Savior who was obedient to the point of death who experienced separation from God so we could be reunited with him, though we do not deserve it. Will you mold us and shape us? Will you keep the gospel before us every single day? We praise you as a righteous and loving Savior. Thank you for your mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? For those who are part of our response team, if you take your places at this time, man, in in, in response to this message, if, if you've never... If you've never claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or if you want to know more about Him, there are people here ready to talk and pray with you. Or if you've got something else that you need to pray about, you can do that as we lift up a song to our Savior Jesus, as we sing His name. Let's worship, and as we do, please come.